Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're looking at the life and legacy of Catherine Mansfield, the New Zealand-born modernist writer whose haunting and powerful works helped to redefine the modern short story. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we found out what happened in Wexford during the 1798 rebellion and how it has been remembered over the past 225 years. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud, our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Tonight's show is on Catherine Mansfield. Born Catherine Mansfield Beauchamp in New Zealand in 1888, she moved permanently to England in 1908 and published her first collection of short stories three years later under the name Catherine Mansfield. Friends with D.H. Lawrence and Virginia Woolf and a whole network of writers, she contracted TB in 1917 but continued to write until her death in January 1923 at the age of 34. Described as one of the most influential writers of the 20th century and as courageous, gifted and haunting, Mansfield is remembered today as a literary artist who helped create the modern short story. And so on this, the centenary of her death, we're delighted to explore her life her works and her legacy with our brilliant panel of experts. Vincent O'Sullivan is Professor Emeritus, Victoria University of Wellington, and is one of the world's foremost Mansfield scholars. He has edited with Margaret Scott the five-volume edition of Catherine Mansfield's Collected Letters, published by Oxford University Press, and he is also widely published and acclaimed as a poet, fiction writer, playwright, biographer, and librettist. Dr. Adrian Patterson lectures in English at the University of Galway and has published widely on 18th, 19th, and 20th century literature, from birdsong to broadcasts, poetry to pianos, with a particular interest in the artistic interactions of modernism and Irish literature and he's the president of Modernist Studies Ireland and he's the co-editor of the Edinburgh Companion to WB Yeats and the Arts which will be published next year. Well you're both very welcome and later in the show I'll be talking to Dr Jerry Kimber, visiting professor in the Department of English at the University of Northampton and co-editor of Catherine Mansfield Studies, the peer-reviewed annual yearbook of the Catherine Mansfield Society. Well as I say you are all very welcome but Vincent I might be begin with you and a broad general question about Catherine Mansfield's significance. How good a writer was she and and what was her impact? Well, I think, to begin with, her impact is is pretty obvious because I think uh, she's the only short story writer who's been um, continuously in in, in print since her death for over 100 years. But also um, her approach to the short story and the novelty and technique and so on that she brought to it, I think, is the thing that places her there with uh, the the important modernists. Um, be- before getting on to that, just for a second, I'll mention that Oscar Wilde was an, the strongest influence on her as a teenager, and that died away. But what didn't die away was the influence beyond but through Wilde of Walter Pater. And... Um, his insistence, especially in his famous conclusion to the, uh, the Renaissance and so on, that existence is just this drifting together of um, <clears throat> of wisps almost on the stream of life, and we know people for a moment and then not for a moment. And that is the sort of thing that she took up, I think, in her very earliest um, uh, stories. It's the kind of fiction that her name brings to mind, and that's the almost plotless narrative 
in which time moves deftly um, and normal sequence is abandoned. And also her insistence that the individual mind approaches another, then draws back. So that when she tells a story, it doesn't have the linear form that the short story had up to her time, but it's more in the manner of impressionist painting. It's an approach to fiction that um, I think emphasizes and illuminates the singular moments of a situation rather than the time sequence of it. In other words, she's interested in pattern rather than continuity. And I think that was the freshness from the start of her approach. And Adrian, you're the president of Modernist Studies Ireland. Maybe explain to us uh, what modernism means, because that's a term that's uh, always associated with Catherine Mansfield. That's a good question. Uh, lots of people have argued about that for a long time, but I would say it, 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 it comes to do with discontinuity, with um, fission, with um, breakages. Uh, but also certain kinds of new continuities. Um, I think of the philosopher Henri Bergson, who talks about particular sense of consciousness being as if it were like a musical phrase. Um, he's probably borrowing from Wagner. And the, the possibility of attention to the moment, which is a phrase that Benson used, this idea of moments. And I think particularly with, with Mansfield, she has jump cuts like cinema. She has breaks. Um, she plays with form in such an interesting way that you might think is cinematic or uh, using some music or the visual arts. But also this attention to the moment um, is is something really powerful. And as Vincent says, she, she draws that maybe from Pater who talks about, you know, attention to moments. You've got a, like a hard gem-like flame. You've got to make, make close attention to details. Uh, but also through... French writing, which some of which she received through uh, Arthur Simmons, who's a poet and writer who's um, writing what he calls London. Uh, well, it, he, he writes a poem called uh, it writes books of poems called London Nights and Impressions, which, as you might imagine, draws something from the French impressionists, impressionists um, the painters, I mean, but also the writers of that period who are trying to look at certain kinds of moments and how they, the atoms fall on the consciousness. Um, how we perceive things, so that instead of an objective, solid reality, we're looking at, uh, we're perceiving something through um, images, through sound, through even um, smell and taste and all the senses, and that kind of merging and blending of the senses in a kind of synesthesia, the technical term, I suppose, where, where senses get confused, comes through uh, writers like like uh, Arthur Simons, or Simmons he's sometimes called, I'll call him Simons for now. But he he writes short impressionist poems, but also writes kind of prose, again, borrows very much from the French writers, Valérie and Mallarmé. Um, so they're doing something at the end of the 19th century that I think that, that is a very important and powerful part of modernism. Um, in some ways, you know, compared to T.S. Eliot and maybe W.B.H. and Joyce, Mansfield doesn't always get as much of a look in, which is which is frankly not right, because what she's doing is actually in some ways more revolutionary by looking at the, the detailed moments. Uh, Jane Austen wrote about uh, her own two inches of ivory in which she had painted with a very small brush. And in a sense, that was a kind of modesty. But Mansfield's 
attention to the detail, attention to the moment is actually producing something highly revolutionary and changes um, the short story uh, in English. Um, perhaps the French and Russian writers have been doing some things uh, that clearly influence Mansfield, but she in English, perhaps alongside Joyce, is the one that revolutionizes the short story and makes that really the 20th century's prose art form above all. And Vincent, why do you think she hasn't received that same recognition as, say, James Joyce? Is it because of her gender? Is it because of her nationality? Is it because of her sexuality? I, I, what, what's, the, what's the reason for that, do you think? Yes, well, all of those things have been raised as explanations, but I think um, at times too much is made from them. I think the, uh, the most obvious reason <clears throat> is that the short story just wasn't taken as seriously as um, as poetry and um, major extended pieces of prose like Joyce's. And But I, I agree with what was uh, just said there, is that she took short fiction towards a far more lyrical and looser form. And hers was um, a method that admitted the flicker and moods of perception and the mere brushings of temperament. And so the breakages that we can talk about in modernism um, were not breakages absolutely with her, but with attending to what had been regarded as much smaller aspects of the short story. And with her, it's that intensity of um, looking at things. And she's always on about this in her letters and so on, that she says, I intensify the so-called small things so that truly everything is significant. And the next, and I think, big jump in Mansfield's approach to the story was her realization before anyone else that the methods of the cinema could be used in a short story. She says, for example, often in talking to people, writing to them that uh, we only saw ourselves for an interrupted moment. It was like the cinema. And what she does in the her finest stories, you know, Prelude and At the Bay and so on, is she takes, dispenses entirely with the expectations of narrative as we normally think of it and uses particular close takes of the kind we're used to in film and at the end of that take, there's a break. There's no necessary continuity, but into another scene. And so she does this with 12 episodes in each of those stories. And each of them add up to a total feeling at the end. But as we look at them one by one, there isn't that attention to development in that old-fashioned sense. It's a sense of the drawing together the significance of interruptions that give us a total sense at the end of coherence. And Vincent, what's her reputation in New Zealand? And I suppose, how is she viewed in New Zealand given that she did, I think, move to to London in, when I think when she was 15 in 1903, then she went back to New Zealand yes, yes. and then she moved permanently to, to Europe uh, when she was 20 and spent the rest of her life outside of New Zealand? Yes. Well, curiously enough, there was quite a lot of resentment of her um, in, in New Zealand. I remember when I was a student, say, in the 60s, um, that the people who have 
regarded as significant of writers were very condescending to her. Um, our most important writer uh, at the time, Frank Sargison, um, I remember his saying to me, um, you mustn't become too infatuated with the writings of a Karori schoolgirl. And it was just the sense that she was getting the attention and others here, the male writers especially, were thinking that we're the ones doing the work of trying to show what New Zealand is. But what they were showing, of course, was in New Zealand according to the fashions of the time, which were realism and so on. So uh, much of their uh, dislike for Mansfield at that time was was um, purely on the grounds that, that, that she was a woman and that she sort of um, was getting this attention overseas. So it's only really since, I suppose, the last 30 years since the various editions of her work have been completed and so on, and she's made her way into university courses. And there is still some thinking in New Zealand that, oh, yes, she's all very well, but she's basically a European writer rather than one of us, rather than a New Zealand writer. Now, I don't think that's the predominant view now, but still some have it. And especially now when they say, well, where are her politics? Why wasn't she aware of colonialism? Which, of course, she was, but not in the terms that are some, sometimes demanded. Yeah, I would have thought she was aware of colonialism because you do see Maori characters and Maori culture portrayed in her stories. You know, I was reading how Pearl Button was kidnapped and there you see exactly. very sympathetic yes. portrayal of Maori characters. So it does seem to be something that, that influenced and shaped her writing. Oh, yes. And she also wrote sort of some prose poems uh, when she was in New Zealand about being in the Botanic Gardens, but aware of the this dark presence in the bush that had been forced to disappear to make room for our um, imitation uh, British civilization and, and that sort of thing. No, she was actually quite sharp on these things. It's just that um, more attention is, was given to her, you know, I was saying her European stories, um, and this meant that she was taking um, a limited class conscious view of New Zealand. But then this is missing, of course, the important point in something like uh, the Garden Party, which sort of undercuts class assumptions with enormous effectiveness. So in other words, um, to answer you is that you can say that she's had a rather sort of muddled history in New Zealand, certainly until the 1960s. And then, but since then, there has been sort of stronger recognition of her importance. Adrian, it is very interesting. I see the similarities with Joyce and Joyce's relationship with Ireland as well and all of that. Uh, can you tell us maybe how she was received when she arrived in London and, and what was her experience like there? That's a good question. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll talk about the parallels of Joyce in a minute because I think there are quite a few. But certainly when she arrives, in, I mean, she has, I, I think, as Vincent is saying, she, she's a New Zealand writer that is then uh, taken up in Europe and published and appreciated in Europe. On the other hand, the fact that she was a New Zealand writer, an outsider in some ways, is really important to what she's doing. I think she is a political writer. Um, she talks about that her writing is a cry against corruption. She says it's not a protest, but a cry 
and it, you know corruption in the wider sense of the word is what she said. So it has a kind of political force, I think, and 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 in its attention to underregarded uh, people and lives that. Um, really haven't appeared in fiction in English before, and perhaps Joyce is the only possible parallel with Dubliners as being a kind of look at what Joyce calls the odour of corruption in in Dublin society at that moment, um, uh, and, and kind of darkness. And he talks about it in terms of smell. I think, I mean, there's a story uh, in she has a wonderful collection called In the German Pension, which um, uh, is, is said, as you can tell, I think, in Germany where. She herself went to Bavaria for for a well. I was going to say rescuer. That's the kind of term for it then. But partly because she was um, uh, pregnant uh, and uh, it was a complicated uh, arrangement. So, but in the Luftbach, she the, one of the stories. There's a question to a person that's not unlike Catherine Mansfield, the narrator, who is a very mobile, strange, interesting figure in these stories. She kind of comes in and out of the stories, and certain self-revelations happen, and certain kind of self-consciousness happens, but. We don't hear that much about it. And the question is, are you an American? And the answer is no. Then you're an Englishwoman. Well, hardly. Um, you must be one of the two. You cannot help it. So, <laughs> so as if you had to be something, and, these, and she's neither. She's kind of in between. She's, she's clearly from New Zealand. She embraces Anglophone culture. She talks about the possibility of living in Trafalgar Square in a tent and only leaving to attend Bayreuth, which is you know, Wagner's um, great summer music festival. Um, but she also talks when she arrives in England about loathing England. You know, so there's a, always a kind of in betweenness and outsiderness that's possible um, in her writing, and I think that 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 sort of matters. But yeah, it's it's like Joyce, but different. I mean, Joyce, of course, was also in the cinema, but but um, Joyce moves from Ireland, has a kind of uh, only ever writes about Ireland really, apart from a couple of very short pieces of prose. Um, and a few poems where he writes about Italy and, and, and Switzerland and other things. So Joyce is, leaves Ireland but only ever writes about Ireland. Mantle's different. She's mobile. She writes about all sorts of cultures and things. She's so um, quick at perceiving new impressions and experiences. And I think that you can see her as a, a London writer in some way, um, it, on the model of Arthur Simons, who's, who's again you know doing impressions and London nights and things like that. But you can also see her as a European writer who's interested in French literature and, and mm-hmm. German sounds and things. And I think something of the, I would I would say almost of the the musician in her, the the ability to to listen, to perceive um, uh, sound and voices and accents is something that seeps into her prose from the very beginning. And whether that's something that she she came upon because she was a musician in London. I mean, she originally comes as a as a as a, a schoolgirl. Um, but for a time really wants to make a living as a professional musician. She was a cellist, uh, a very good cellist. And even as late as kind of 1907, she's talking about kind of doing six hours of work on the cello and three hours of writing. That's a kind of imagined day um, that she proposes for herself. So there's something in the possibility that, you know, London at that time was, was starting to be a kind of musical center. The Royal College of Music, you've got people like Holst, Vaughan Williams, Rebecca Clark, who's just, uh, almost um, recovered composer, and this idea that she's uh, interested in the sounds and even the tones of, well, the cello, which I, I'm a cellist myself, it's kind of got a low register, but also can go up very high, and Vincent mentioned, mentioned a while before, there's a possibility that you can play parts on the cello, you can play very high and sound very differently when you play low, 
and also the tone of the cello is all important. She sort of experiments with the possibility you could even recite poems in new ways um, or prose in new ways and talks about how tone should be my secret, each word a variety of tones. So I think she's obsessed with a kind of sound, and that fits in very much with, you know, what um, Florence Farr, Ezra Pound, WBH were doing in London, which is trying to think about how to uh, perform poetry in new ways alongside music or next to music in these ways. And so she's actually on the cusp of something really interesting. Um, she, of course, writes plenty of poems. She writes songs uh, for um, her sister to set. And that, I think, is quite similar to Joyce. So they both have a sense of foreign languages. They both have a sense of a, a very strong musical sense. Joyce was a singer and a, a pianist and a guitarist. Um, and both also experiment with poetry um, in a way, and both are not really known as poets, I think it's fair to say. Like Joyce's poetry is still pretty fairly um, obscure to most people, and Mansell's poetry is too, but it has something interesting. It plays with sound, it plays with form. Um, it's not maybe the greatest poetry, like Joyce's is not the greatest poetry, but you can hear in it experiments in form and pushing certain things as well as certain kind of conventional sounds and patterns and rhyme and those things. And when she moves into kind of prose poetry, which is more of a French form and prose itself, she becomes a writer that's just, you know, by 1908, 1909, is already doing things that are so interesting. Um, you can look at her journals and diaries and even experiments in, in poetry and prose that period, and you find that she's doing something really magnificent. So it's just something about her reception in Europe, her taken up by um, the... <laughs> Orage of the New Age, which is where she first published in, as, a, as a writer, really, and later with the kind of the, the group that make up the journal Rhythm, um, Ferguson, the Scottish artist, and Middleton Murray, who's become her husband. She's involved pretty quickly in a really sharp and important European milieu, that, which she's so precocious and so brilliant that I think the others recognize, even the Bloomsbury writers, Wolf and so on, recognize how important she is. Okay, well, we are talking history tonight and talking about the life and work of Catherine Mansfield. We're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, I'll be talking to Dr. Jerry Kimber about Catherine Mansfield's relationships and writings. So stay with us here on News Talk. Welcome back. We're talking history and tonight we're talking about the life, legacy and work of Catherine Mansfield on this, the centenary of her death. And I'm delighted to be joined by one of the world's leading experts on Catherine Mansfield. And that's Dr. Jerry Kimber, visiting professor in the Department of English at the University of Northampton and co-editor of Catherine Mansfield Studies. Her books include Catherine Mansfield, The Early Years, Catherine Mansfield and the Art of the Short Story and Catherine Mansfield, The View from France. And she's the series editor of the four volume Edinburgh edition of the collected works of Catherine Mansfield and for 10 years was the president of the Catherine Mansfield Society. Jerry, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Can we talk first of all maybe about the private Catherine Mansfield? Because I, I, I find it difficult to navigate the, difficult, the different relationships she was involved in, uh, the different love affairs, uh, as well as the marriage. And it did seem quite complicated at times. <laughs> She did have a really, really complicated life, but she was an she was a very unusual person, even for the time. Um, I mean, for example, let me just read you. This is a, a quote um, from a, a Virginia Woolf's diary, and the first time uh, that she that Mansfield dined with the Woolf's, with Leonard and Virginia Woolf, 
and Virginia Woolf wrote after she'd gone, uh, sorry, the, the following day, the dinner last night went off, the delicate things were discussed. We could both wish that one's first impression of KM was not that she stinks like a, well, civet cat that had taken to street walking. In truth, I'm a little shocked by her commonness at first sight, lying so hard and cheap. However, when this diminishes, she is so intelligent and inscrutable that she repays friendship. And so you've got this um, quite extraordinary uh, quote from, from, from Wolf, who thought that, that Mansfield was very, very different to her, and she was. Mansfield was supremely modern. She bobbed her hair when other women were still just vaguely thinking about it. She wore start scarlet stockings. She raised her hems as soon, as soon as she was able. She was the ultimate modern woman. And that's jarred with people like Virginia Woolf, who were still quite old school, not in their writing and their techniques, because uh, Virginia Woolf was very modernist. Uh, one of the great modernist writers, but so was Mansfield. And I think um, in her relationships, um, sometimes Mansfield's modernity and her approach to life um, sometimes jarred, you know, with people. I suppose in the present day, she, what, what would we would we say she was bisexual, perhaps? Only very initially. I mean, she was uh, in her uh, growing up. She she was. Um, you know, in inverted commas, quite normal. But when she uh, she had her education, um, what we would call secondary education, in mostly in London at Queen's College in Harley Street, her father was a very wealthy New Zealand businessman and sent his three daughters to, to London to be educated. Um, and so she was there from age um, 15 to 18. Then they returned back to New Zealand and Mansfield felt stifled, confined, absolutely hated it, and really made herself completely obnoxious till she, but in, in the end, her parents relented and let her go back on her own, which is quite a big thing in 1908, to let you know a young girl of 18 re- go to a foreign country on her own, especially in that sort of family. But in the meantime, whilst in that year and a half that Mansfield spent in New Zealand before she returned, she um, developed sexual feelings for two women and that and those kind those lesbian relationships continued once she returned in fact I would say she was bisexual once she returned to to England and she had a couple more um uh we I would now call experimental relationships but once she met her husband her future husband John Middleton Murray in 1911 those relationships ended and I just think that really Mansfield, she was more of an experimenter um, and it, it caused her a lot of, tr- you know, it brought trouble to her life because she was living um, what in the 1960s uh, women were living that free, free life, free love, experimenting, but they had the pill and they had antibiotics. Mansfield had neither. So what happened to her was that this uh, this way of living, which was um, very complicated with both women and subsequently with men, led to um, at least one, possibly two abortions and also to um, her giving birth to a stillborn child in 1909, completely alone in Bavaria. 
these were very hard times for Mansfield. She did experiment, but it came at a huge personal cost. And, Uh, sorry, after that time, as I say, once she'd settled down to a a life with John Middleton-Murray, that experimentation ended. It did also result in the gonorrhea that she was not formally diagnosed till 1920. For 10 years, Mansfield thought she had rheumatism, which um, I don't know much about gonorrhea, but apparently that is, it's a sort of, it makes you feel like your bones ache, everything aches, and then it was formally diagnosed. And she caught that it during those early promiscuous years as well. And possibly the tuberculosis was caught at that time that eventually killed her so young. So she did pay a heavy price for that, for that sort of, uh, free life, free love um, of those early years. And you're currently, I think, re-editing her letters for Edinburgh University Press. And uh, I am. There's an incredible insight yet because she wrote. It was the era of letter writing, and she wrote a huge amount. Oh, she did. Um, and I think all critics would agree that um, all the letters that she wrote, they don't just complement her body of work; they are actually an essential part of it. And some of them are written so beautifully and are so beautifully crafted as much as any of her stories. Um, And they they illustrate how imaginative she was, the expressive scope of her writing. Um, um, One of her very first biographers um, wrote that um, this is of Mansfield's period when she was away from Murray between September 1919 and the end of April 1920. And during that period, she had written to Murray over 110,000 words in letters. And that is like, even if you were to add up all the the numbers of words in her collected stories, it doesn't come to that. And that's just the letters to Murray. So you can see how important um, her letters are because she died so young. We have so little of her apart from the published stories and the unpublished the uh, diaries and notebooks that she left behind after her death. Um, They actually double um, what we have of Mansfield's work. um, And so they have to constitute an essential part of it. And what insight do we get into her? Because some of them are quite painful. They're honest. Do you get a real sense of of the pain that uh, she was experiencing and, 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 and the challenges and crises in her life? Yeah, yeah, we do. Um, they, they, her letters are almost like a biography. I mean, you could easily read the letters, and especially the ones to Murray, which are comprised of the last two volumes of our edition. There are so many letters to Murray that um, we've kept them apart, and they've comprised volumes three and four. And, I mean, just the letters. Uh, Mansfield sent, obviously, we don't have... they. Murray's letters back to her exist, but um, it would have created a, a completely different edition to have like that to and fro and to and fro going back. But even just the letters that Mansfield wrote, I mean, you can see they were, um, I mean, Ali Smith, for example, the wonderful novelist, um, wrote, um, and she said, Mansfield lived viscerally from postal delivery to postal delivery, went into regular letter fret, even into a sort of end of the world despair when letters meant to arrive didn't arrive. And you can see that despair 
Um, and you can follow, for example, Matfield had her first hemorrhage of the lungs in 1918, away from Murray, as usual, and um, wrote to him. And it, they are so poignant, you know, hold, please hold me in your arms for a moment. Don't be scared. I'm sure this is absolutely curable, but... Um, and such, a, you know, and it goes on and on like that. But um, there, our edition is different to all previous editions in that what we chose to do was to write, was to compose them, not in chronological order, but in um, by recipient. What this means is that, for example, all her letters to Virginia Woolf are in one place. All her letters to Murray are in one place. You can follow those. You can follow her epistolary relationships in a way that, as with previous editions, where you had to have all the volumes out in order to be able to, because there'd be one letter to Virginia Woolf, and then she might have written 20, 25 letters in between the next one. And so you don't get that same sense of a relationship. But with ours, um, you can follow um, that particular given relationship and get as far as we're concerned and we have had some wonderful reviews and I think people do agree you get much more of a, a sense of Mansfield's various selves because she did she was a different person the person who wrote to her mother was very different to the person that wrote to Virginia Woolf was very different to the person that wrote to her husband um, and you really get a sense of that it's a it's a rare approach to the ordering of letters of literary letters, um, uh, where, but when you classify according to recipient, you do get you really foregrounds the theatrical performance of letter writing itself, and we all do it. I mean, not many people send postcards now, but even when we send postcards, for example, when we're on holiday, we'll write a very different postcard to our I don't know best friend at university to the postcard we would write to our grandmother. Um, and so, and when you order all those letters, not chronologically, which always, I mean, what does it end up when you start with chronology, you know, the very first letter that we have that Mansfield ever wrote, that's still extant, and that you'd have that then, you know, that inevitable march towards death because the last letter she wrote will be, um, you know, the, the last letter before she died. So it does offer a very, very different reading experience. And we think um, a better reading experience. And finally, Jerry, do you think that she's the most important modern short story writer? Absolutely. I mean, and I, again, I don't think it's just me. I mean, um, uh, a modernist critic, Peter Childs, wrote that she was the most important modernist who only wrote short stories. Sadly, dying at the age of 34, we don't know what she might have accomplished if she had lived longer. But her, her, what, her writing is so innovative, so different to what went before, um, that in every single sense, she, she, she led the field in, what, in showing what was possible um, in the short story. Well, that's absolutely brilliant. My thanks to Dr. Jerry Kimber, visiting professor in the Department of English at the University of Northampton, one of the world's leading experts on Catherine Mansfield and the series editor of the four volume edition of the collected works of Catherine Mansfield for joining me this evening. Jerry, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.
We'll be back after the break when we talk about the illness, death and legacy of Catherine Mansfield. So stay with us here on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. We're talking about the life and work of Catherine Mansfield. And I'm rejoined by my panel, Dr. Adrian Patterson of the University of Galway and Vincent O'Sullivan, a leading Mansfield scholar uh, who's the uh, the editor, along with Margaret Scott, of the five-volume edition of Catherine Mansfield's Collected Letters. Vincent, can we talk about TB and what a death sentence that was when Catherine Mansfield contracted that then in 1917? Perhaps the most important physical fact about Mansfield is that she was actually slowly dying for her last five years. And for most of the, her last four years, here was a woman in her late 20s, <clears throat> early 30s, having to use a stick just to get across a room. And she saw an important thing in the way Mansfield saw this herself was that there was a direct correlation, as she thought, between the war and her own physical decay. It's, it's rather an interesting and sort of... Um, complex way she approaches this, but <clears throat> um, she talked about her lungs, for example, as the battlefield. Battleships that she saw on the horizon were like spots on a lung. Um, she called her lungs her wings, which I think places that her very late story, The Fly, um, close to this feeling that it is her own story she is telling there with the father figure perhaps even being God in trying to slow this creature down to the point of, of destruction. And part of her irritation with Virginia Woolf after the war and her really ra- rather severe review of um, Woolf's novel the, the Voyage Out is that it didn't refer to the war. And she thought, as indeed Freud did, that the war was a massive break in the European tradition and how we think and how we have to think. And in the late 20s, she signs a very image, a vivid image, for what later on would be called existential dread. I'll just read this a little bit. She says, the little boat enters the dark and of course this is written with an eye to her illness, the little boat enters the dark, fearful gulf, and our only cry is to escape. Put me on land again. But it's useless. Nobody listens. The shadowy figure rows on. One ought to sit still and uncover one's eyes. And she also says that I have a violent belief in our existence. So whether it was in health or in her uh, TB years, the existence was always on the vividness of experience, even when it was sort of deeply unpleasant. But that business of seeing the war also fed into her self-accusation, her feeling that because she wasn't a better person and so on, that it was not reasonable, but... In some ways, it was appropriate that she was represented by the same destruction that her peers and that her generation had. So it's it's really rather an interesting um, thing to, you can't just take and say, 
here's, here's a woman dying of TB who also wants to be a writer, is that her illness both, I think, shapes the sort of story she, she wants to tell, but it also sort of defines her view of herself until at the end, of course, when she goes to the Gurdjieff Institute and then definitely and deliberately putting intellectualism aside, saying, at last, uh, these are my people. I found them at last, she says about the Russians at the Gurdjieff Institute. And she's not too worried then about dying, if you can say that. I mean, she knows she's going to die. She says it's in her thoughts every hour of the day. But what she believes in there is that she said she wants to get the dying over. By that she means she wants to be able to face what is left of life in the most positive way. And so it's, it's a long and elaborate and intricate journey from the first signs of her TB to the various intellectual um, existentialism and then coming back to um, something um, even closer, sometimes I think, to the footnotes of the wasteland, that we have to make ourselves aware of the past of mythology and so on. And she talks about the importance of unity, as Yeats, of course, talks about hammering our thoughts into unity. But her unity that she wants in the end is to be ordinary, everyday, and simplicity, and not to be distorted as she thinks her generation was by over-intellectualism. And one criticism I read of her work, Vincent, was that maybe she published too many stories, that maybe some were published by, was it her editor or husband, that perhaps weren't good enough for publication, and that maybe diminished the value of some of her better works. You're absolutely right about that, is that Murray... (laughs) Lots of commentators on... Uh, in the last 20 years or so, have really given Murray a hard time. And it's easy to do. He was sort of a a rather stiff, rigid English um, intellectual. He simply had none of that natural vivacity that Mansfield had. She used to feel this, saying, you know, can't we do anything other than just read books and write, stop for half an hour for a cigarette and go back to our books? Um, and when she died, of course, he then tried to turn her into a sort of a secular Teresa of Lisieux. It was was absurd, and so any little note of hers was of infinite preciousness that showed she was this marvellous spirit who, and it just reeks of sentimentality and goes completely against the grain of... um, their own relationship much of the time. And so he published stories, uh, uh, you know, she knew what her best stories were and they were in the the two volumes that she published. But then he added to all these others, he brought out truncated and very um, inept uh, editions of her journal and so on. So that it wasn't really until let's say the 60s and 70s, it was possible to start seeing Mansfield as she was, and she'd have been appalled at some of the, uh, I think, some of the um, stories that he published. There was also the fact that in the last months of her life, or the last year, when she was having a very 
expensive and ineffective medical treatment in Paris. It was enormously expensive. Murray didn't help her perhaps as much as he may have, uh, might have um, in paying for it. And so she wrote a number of short stories quickly for a magazine because she got 10 guineas for each of them. And they're not her strongest stories. And so these two, I think, lead to the justness of what you just said, that there are... It's not that she wrote too much, but that too much was published too early that was meant to be represent the woman completely, but it didn't. It distorted certain aspects of her. Very interesting. Adrian, this is, of course, the centenary year of her death. And I was wondering if you were to recommend some of her writings to our listeners, what what should they go to? That's just, I mean, I think you have to go to the short stories. We've talked about her poetry. She also did wonderful translations or collaborated on translations from, from Russian and things. Um, her short stories are where to go because they have such um, attention to luminous details because they revolutionize the form um, because some of them, as Vincent mentioned, at the Bay and Prelude are kind of linked. They, they kind of have a kind of, they're not exactly sequences of stories, but they have characters that recur and moods that uh, are familiar. And some actually are quite different. They, they create, you know, they, they create little interior self-contained worlds that um, are astonishing. So, I mean, stories like Prelude or The Wind Blows, which is um, a very, very short piece that Wolf and others admired and made her publish in her first book, um, in her first major book of stories, Bliss and Other Stories. And actually that story of Bliss, of course, I, I teach that repeatedly and find that that's, that does some of the things that Vincent's talking about, it seems to me. A story like that is has what she calls tragic knowledge. I mean, the sense in which her own life and the war were kind of coterminous, that, that, that there really wasn't a boundary between the death that is behind life. That's and the, the kind of inevitability of rupture and uh, disconnect is something that, that's available in that story. And when my students read it for the first time, they think that there's a shift in the story. But then, and anyone who reads it for the first time might think, oh, there's a surprise. Um, but actually, when you look back at the story, it, it's like a great tragedy and it's kind of inevitability. I don't want to reveal, obviously, what happened, but a woman um, in Bliss called Bertha it feels kind of trapped in some way and has a moment where she feels like she's got a connection. Uh, with another woman while they look at a pear tree, and yet it turns out that that's illusory. Um, in a way, I don't want to describe, but it's it's just wonderful to read. And then if you go back and read the short story from the beginning, you can see that this is shaped by the very beginning of the short story. There are all kinds of hints and allusions, and um, you know the the Greeks would sort of call it dramatic irony or dramatic foreshadowing of all the possibilities that happen. And in the end, there's something really profound about the strange lack of symbolism in this poetry, its flowering and its gloriousness, um, it doesn't disclose the tragedy behind life, but we know that there's that tragedy. And she keeps talking about that, that she says to Murray, you know, 1919, I have to write about the deserts of vast eternity, meaning closing Marvell. The difference between you and me, perhaps I'm wrong. I couldn't tell anyone bang out about those deserts. They're my secrets. I might write about a boy eating strawberries or a woman combing her hair on a windy morning. And that is the only way I can ever mention them. But they must be there. So there's something in the kind of bleakness of existence and the outsider nature of her stories, which I think demand our attention. Um, they have, especially in this kind of world, which is full of uh, 
AI language models, which which potentially will start spewing out language that is just repetitive and and, and flat. Every word that she wrote in her best short stories has a kind of crystalline incision to it that is really, um, I can't say is true of quite any other writer except maybe Joyce and uh, her very best Wolf. Um, but I, th- I think that she's she's going to remain a very big force in the next hundred years. Wonderful. And Vincent, I'm going to leave the final word with you. Uh, I wonder, first of all, was there a big celebration and commemoration of her life and work in, in New Zealand for the centenary of her death? And, and what's the final message you would like to leave to our listeners? Well, again, not that I want to uh, sound too, t- too tough on New Zealand, but there was nowhere near the attention here that, um, you know, there was that, that splendid um, lead article in the TLS of Kirsty Gunn's. There was um, a similar <clears throat> important piece in uh, the New Yorker Review of Books. And the thing that interested me most about the uh, centenary of her death is simply how much attention the wider world was finally giving her. And just as a, a, a final thing, if I might, and uh, just read a few sentences of her as of a major is um, <clears throat> it's from a letter that gives in a few sentences both her passion for the country she came from what she was trying to do in the stories and the fact of how close that method was to that train, that tradition I think that goes right back from Walter Pater through to cinema and the way characters come together, go back, and how much of this is on a level of apprehension and feeling rather than anything intellectual or directly narrative. And she says, you know, if the truth were known, I have a perfect passion for the island where I was born. Well, in the early morning there, I always remember feeling that this little island had dipped back into the dark blue sea during the night only to rise again at beam of day, all hung with bright spangles and glittering drops. I try to catch that moment with something of that sparkle and its flavour. And just as on those mornings white milky mists rise and uncover some beauty, then smother it again and then again disclose it, I try to lift that mist from my people and let them be seen and then to hide them again. Well, a beautiful, poetic reading there by Vincent O'Sullivan. And I think that's a perfect note on which to end our discussion of the life and work of Catherine Mansfield on this, the centenary of her death. My thanks to my wonderful panel of experts, Vincent O'Sullivan, one of the world's leading experts on Mansfield. Dr. Jerry Kimber also joined us, visiting professor in the Department of English at the University of Northampton and the co-editor of Catherine Mansfield Studies. And of course, Dr. Adrian Patterson, lecturer in English at the University of Galway and the president of Modernist Studies Ireland. And he's the co-editor of the Edinburgh Companion to WB Yeats and the Arts, which will be published next year. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to Aoife Breen, who produced tonight's show, my series producer, Marisa Sullivan, and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join Join us then. We've been talking history. Good night.